0: Father, we thank you for all of these things that we can sincerely confess to you, Lord, that you are a righteousness, Lord Jesus. You are the only basis upon which we can draw near to the holy God, that we can join with the angels and cry out, holy, 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 and expect that we can uh, spend an eternity in your presence, you, the thrice holy God. And the fact of what Christ has accomplished is the only reason why we can spend eternity in your presence. It's because he is our righteousness before you. He is the atoning sacrifice that is paid for our sins. It's by his blood that we have been washed clean, made white as snow, made fit to dwell in the holiness of your presence forever and ever. And so, Lord, we make our boast in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, we Abandon all of our own efforts to be made right before you, knowing that that is impossible. And we put our only hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He himself is our only hope, our one defense. He alone is our righteousness. And Lord, we pray that these truths would be firmed up in our heart even more as we study your word together. May your spirit help us in understanding what your word is saying to us. May he give us insight to know how to apply it to our lives, so that we won't leave here the same as when we came in, Lord, but that we may be conformed more and more to Christ's likeness. May you accomplish that, Father, for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're back in 1 Corinthians, and we're starting chapter 2 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're looking at the first five verses of chapter 2. And so as you're turning there, I'll read... Those verses for us. Verse 1, Paul writes And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Remember, Paul is writing this in the context of the quarreling of the Corinthian church. So he's seeking to humble them. He is seeking to bring unity to this congregation, and that is the context in which, Paul is writing this passage, the first five verses of chapter 2. None of us here are strangers to quarreling and conflict. We experience quarrels and conflicts in every sphere of our life, whether it's in our marriages or among friends or at work or between neighbors or even in the church. And I read for us James, uh, the, the whole chapter, but those first ten verses of James connects quarreling with pride and idolatry. Pride and idolatry are always the root of quarreling. And pride says this. Pride says, I am the center of my universe, so I will pursue what I want, even if it comes at the expense of others, because I am the most important person in my universe. That's what pride says. Idolatry Comes along and says this Satisfaction and contentment are not found in God, but in these things that I happen to lack. If only I can get what I want, then I will be happy. And anyone who gets in the way of what I want is my enemy, even God Himself. That's what idolatry says. And so you can see if we bring this attitude into any kind of relationship, The person that we are in relationship with, their desires, their idols, are not always going to be the same as our idols, and so that is where the sparks come from because of our idolatry and our prideful self-will. And pride and idolatry often come to roost in the hearts of those in the church. We can so easily slip into viewing the church as a means to our own end, to feed our own desires. And we each have different ideas of what the church should be. And if we're not careful, those ideas that we have about what the church should be can often be conformed simply to our desires rather than what the Bible says the church should be. And when we are denied what we want to see happening in the church, that is where quarrels come up because that person is getting in the way of my idol and I need to bludgeon them until they're out of my way and I can get my way in the church. And a lot of times, these quarrels erupt in connection with church leadership, church leadership. And this is the case because the most efficient way for me to get what I want is if I have the church leadership in my back pocket. If I have them on my side, their policies can be based on my desires, And if one leader is not serving my desires, I will rally behind a different leader who will serve my desires. And if I cannot find a leader in the church who will serve me, I will go to another church where I'm hoping the leadership there will serve me. And so the cycle goes on and on. We can start to treat the leader as our God, our genie, who exists to fulfill our desires in the church. Pride and idolatry results in me putting a misplaced faith in man. And this kind of misplaced faith stemming from pride and idolatry, that is what has taken root in this church in Corinth. The Corinthians were treating church leaders, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they were treating them as a means of exalting themselves. And they'd even demeaned the name of Jesus by treating him as a mere man who was a means to their end. They'd begun boasting in men. Remember chapter 1, verse 12. They're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. They're each trying to get one up on the other. And so Paul writes this letter to them. And we've seen how Paul has been working to humble these believers to get them to stop conforming themselves worldly wisdom because the world operates by pride and idolatry and that is how these believers have begun operating and so Paul instead wants them to conform not to worldly wisdom but godly wisdom to conform to the cross of Christ and it's the same here in our passage this morning chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. Paul here he turns to begin showing them the prideful folly of putting their faith in men, of boasting in men. We saw last time how Paul exhorted these believers in verses 26 to 31 of chapter 1 to consider who they were when God called them to himself. But here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul is calling on them to consider who he was when he came to them and preached the gospel to them. He wants them to remember how he acted, what he preached to them when he came to them. Because they will see that how Paul acted and what he preached is completely at odds with how they are currently behaving, walking in pride. And so Paul calls on them to consider that so that he might humble them. And in these five verses, we're going to consider three aspects of the preacher. Three aspects of the preacher that will humble these believers and that, I pray, will humble us, humble me, humble you. And the first aspect about Paul, about the preacher, that he brings to their attention is this, the preacher's humble message. The preacher's humble message. We see this in verses 1 through 2. Verse 1, Paul says, "'And when I came to you, brethren, "'I did not come with superiority of speech,' or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. So Paul says in verse 1 that when he came as a missionary seeking to plant a church in Corinth, proclaiming the gospel to them, the testimony of God, it was not in superiority of speech or of wisdom. When Paul came to these individuals, he did not come with an air of superiority about him. He did not come trying to impress them with himself. He wasn't trying to compete with all the professional orators and the professional wise men that that culture in Corinth was so enamored with. He wasn't going to try and beat them to get the Corinthians to buy into what he was preaching. Paul did not act as though he had to win the Corinthians to himself before he could win them to Christ. That wasn't his strategy. And we can ask, why not? Paul seems to have been a very intelligent man. He was obviously well-educated, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He certainly could have competed on the same level as those professional speaking stars who were a constant presence in Corinth. Surely he could have wowed them with his intellect if he wanted to. So why didn't he? Why was that not his strategy? Well, he tells us why in verse 2. He says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says there, For I determined. This was something he decided beforehand, before he ever got to Corinth, he decided this was what he was going to do. So it wasn't that Paul could not wow the Corinthians, it's that he would not seek to wow them with himself. And that goes back to what we saw in chapter 1, verse 13. Remember the questions that Paul asked. He says, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? You were were not baptized into the name of Paul. Paul understood that there was nothing in him in himself that would do the Corinthians any bit of good, so why was he going to try to get them to trust in him by impressing them with superior speech and wisdom? His sole focus, he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified was going to be Paul's sole focus in preaching to these Corinthians. If they were going to buy into what Paul was preaching, it was going to be Christ who they were buying into. It was going to be Christ that they were being converted to, not Paul, not any kind of man-based thinking, only the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so when you and I go to preach the gospel to someone, we also need to follow Paul's example. We need to resolve beforehand, I'm not going to try to wow this person with myself because I don't want them converted to Josh Slocum because Josh Slocum was not crucified for them. I cannot do anything for that person that I am sharing the gospel with. Only Christ can save that person. And it's the same for you with whoever you're sitting in front of. You cannot do anything for them. Only Christ can. And so determine beforehand that you are not going to Try to convert them to anything in yourself, you are going to present Jesus to them because you want them to come to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we have to make sure that the Jesus we present is not the false Jesus that the culture likes to go on about, this Jesus who lets them do whatever they want to do. No, we need to preach the Jesus of the Bible who was nailed to a cross and rose from the dead. And he calls us, if we would receive his salvation, to turn from our sins and to put our trust in him alone as our Savior and Lord. And to then, after he has saved us, pick up our cross and follow him. That is the Jesus that this book proclaims. And that is the Jesus that we need to determine beforehand to proclaim. To know nothing but him for the sake of that person's eternal soul. We have to have the same attitude that characterized Paul and Barnabas when they ministered at Lystra. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 14. I want you to see this. Acts chapter 14. And we'll look at verses 8 through 15. Paul and Barnabas are on a missionary journey, and they've arrived at Lystra. Chapter 14, verse 8. Luke records, At Lystra a man was sitting, who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand up, right on, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done... They raised their voice, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have, come, have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So they're wanting to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Verse 14, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see their example there. They were repulsed by the idea that the people they preached the gospel to would place any kind of hope or worship in themselves. And they rushed into the crowd and tore their robes in grief over what they were seeing and they redirected the attention of the crowd to the one true living God. And that should be our, our attitude whenever we're ministering the truth to someone else. We should desire them to worship the true and living God. And if we see that they're putting any kind of hope in us, depending on us at all, we should be revolted by that and say, no, no, you you need to trust in Christ, not in me. All right, so that that is the humble message that Paul brought to these Corinthians. That is the humble message that we should bring to the lost whenever the Lord gives us opportunity to do that. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul goes on to remind these believers of not only the humble message he preached, but the humble manner in which he preached to them. And this is our second aspect that we're looking at. The preacher's humble manner. We see that in verses 3 through 4. Look at verse 3. Paul goes on, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling weakness and fear and in much trembling. So when Paul came to Corinth, he was not impressing anyone with himself. They saw this little man trembling, weak, and in fear as he proclaimed the gospel to them. And he was so fearful that it resulted in actual physical trembling, apparently. And I was I shouldn't have been surprised by this, but as I was studying, I realized that this was not an unusual thing for Paul. This was not an unusual uh, stature for him to be ministering in, weakness, fear, and trembling. It, It appears that wherever Paul went proclaiming the gospel, he was perpetually in this state of weakness. Turn, if you would, to see this to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 starting in verse 23. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. This, the context here, Paul is defending his ministry to the Corinthians because uh, these quote-unquote super apostles, these false teachers, have infiltrated the church and they have begun wowing the Corinthians by themselves which was totally the opposite of the way Paul ministered. He sought to wow them with Christ, not with himself. And so he's trying to squash the influence of these false apostles. And so he's speaking of the nature of his own ministry to expose the, uh, the falsehood of these false apostles. This is what he says in verse 23. Speaking of these false apostles, he says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. So, you get why Paul was with them in weakness and fear and trembling? And the fear he's talking about is not a sinful fear, the kind of fear that gets in the way of him obeying God. No, it's, it, it appears more to be that, that circumstantial fear that, you know, I'm walking along uh, some bushes and I hear a rattlesnake and, you know, naturally I get that fear response. Well, Paul was constantly in dangerous situations where his life was on the line and he was having to trust God in all of that. He goes on in verse 27. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus the ethnarch under Eratos the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. Now that last incident that happened more toward the beginning of his ministry. So his whole ministry has been marked by weakness and fear and trembling. He goes on in chapter 12 Verses 1 through 6 to describe how God revealed to him a vision where he saw incredible things that it's not fit for a man to speak of. And then after relating this to them, he goes on in chapter 12, verse 7, to say this Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me to keep me from exalting myself concerning this i implored the lord 3 times that it might leave me and he has said to me and now catch this my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness most gladly therefore i will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of christ may dwell in me therefore i am well content That's quite a statement. I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I'd invite you to go through the other epistles and see how often Paul is ministering the gospel from a position of weakness. And how often he's writing letters while imprisoned. How often... um, he, saw, he, he found occasion to preach the gospel, an occasion that was made available to him through his weakness. For example, in Galatians, he talks about it was because of his bodily weakness that he had opportunity to proclaim the gospel to the Galatians. His entire ministry from beginning to end was carried out in the context of weakness. And so this, what he says here in uh, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3 This is not unusual for Paul. God was continually stripping Paul of all confidence in himself, constantly stripping him of that self-confidence. And because of that, we find more about the manner in which he preached in verse 4. So he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And then verse 4, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So Paul, he never went around trying to win people to Christ on the basis of his own skill or artfulness in speaking. And this is not that Paul was against being persuasive or against using reasoning. No, his preaching was always characterized by Persuasiveness and reasoning, but what he was against, what he sought to, to put away from himself, was being persuasive for the sake of exalting himself or exalting the ones he was preaching to, making them great in their own eyes, flattering them so that they would buy into what he was saying. He never did any of that. He says in verse 4 that his message and his preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom that is worldly wisdom because who did he preach Christ crucified to the world that's foolishness and that's the message that Paul preached through the afflictions that God was continually bringing into Paul's life Paul understood quite clearly that he couldn't even guarantee his own next breath he depended upon the lord for everything even the next breath he was going to take and if he couldn't even guarantee his own next breath certainly he was not going to depend on himself in order to try and create faith in an unregenerate sinner so when paul preached he didn't preach himself he preached christ and him crucified and when the corinthians came to to faith saving faith as a result of that preaching it was a clear demonstration, not of Paul's power, but of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says at the end of verse 4. My message and my preaching were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In meditating on just these couple of verses this week, I was convicted that I so often get this backward. I turn it upside down. Because... I'm so comfortable here in America. We are so pampered here. Our lives revolve around making things easier for ourselves. We are repulsed by any kind of discomfort or distress. I mean, you don't even have to leave the house to get groceries anymore, you can have it delivered to your front step. Our lives are consumed with escaping the feelings of discomfort and distress. And it's that obsession with comfort that largely gets in the way of our evangelizing or any other kind of ministry, this idolizing of comfort. We seem to think that evangelism or any other kind of ministry should be easy, that it should come naturally, that there shouldn't be any feeling of weakness or fear and trembling. And we think that before we can evangelize someone, we need to have it all together that we need to be confident in our own abilities, that there should be no feelings of weakness or fear and trembling in us. And so we take evangelism class after evangelism class to try to purge the weakness out of ourselves so that finally I will have the nerve to go and proclaim the gospel to somebody. And we're disappointed time and again to find that it just won't leave (laughs) I still feel my weakness and my fear and trembling. Why does this keep happening? Why does it not go anywhere? And so we don't evangelize. And we don't deny ourselves to minister to others because we feel like we're just not ready. But this passage here shows me that that's backwards. Because when you are weak and fearful and trembling, that is when you are most equipped to go and proclaim the gospel to someone to go and minister to someone how so because when you step forward in obedience to Christ and you proclaim the gospel to them while your heart is fainting and your knees are shaking and your voice is quivering and you feel like puking you likely at that point have abandoned all thoughts of grandeur for yourself and you are totally relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save this person that you are talking to because you have no hope in the world of doing anything for them you are so weak and you understand how weak you are. That's when the power comes when you are depending on the powerful one and you've abandoned all hope in yourself. So when you're feeling weak and you're tempted to turn back from sharing the gospel with someone from ministering to someone, no, that is the time to step forward and to trust in the Lord who promised, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He wants to display His power through your weakness. And so, yes, we should seek to be well-trained in evangelism, but we need to stop trying to train the weakness out of ourselves because you'll never be able to train it out, and that's by God's design. Instead, we should be like Paul. We should be well content with weakness. Because when we are weak, then we are strong. Because God delights to manifest his power through his servant's weakness so that he's getting the glory, not you, not me with my knees shaking. So that's the preacher's humble manner. Then we come to verse 5, and that's the third aspect that we're considering this morning, and that's the preacher's humble mission. The preacher's humble mission, the goal, the goal of the message that Paul preached, the goal of the manner in which he preached. It was what verse 5 says. This is the mission. This is the goal. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So why did Paul preach a humble message? Why did he preach with a humble manner? It was so that the Corinthians' faith would not be on him, but on the Lord alone who's able to save them. And when we proclaim truth to someone or we seek to minister to someone, that ought to always be our, our mission as well. We should never seek to get someone to trust in us, to base their faith in God on us. Well, he's trustworthy, so I guess I'll, I'll believe in this God because he was so winsome, he was so loving, he was so smart, he was so whatever. We shouldn't ever want someone to believe on our account because if we do happen to succeed in getting someone to outwardly confess Christ, to profess faith, whether we wowed them into it, bullied them into it, or bribed them into it, It's only a matter of time before someone more skilled than us, more winsome than us, more crafty than us, comes along and wows them out of their profession of faith or bullies them out of their profession of faith or bribes them out of their profession of faith. But if it's God, by his spirit, by his power, creating faith in that unbeliever, bringing a dead soul to life in Christ. There is no one who can come along and talk that new believer out of following Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 29, he says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Only God can grant saving Persevering faith. When these Corinthians were saved after hearing little weak Paul preach Christ crucified to them, their faith was not based on anything in Paul. They believed because God had opened their eyes to see the glories of Christ, to see the wickedness of their own sin. There was nothing about Paul that drew them to God. It was God drawing them to himself through Christ crucified. Their faith was in Christ alone. Their boast was in God alone. But now, in their pride, they have begun boasting in men again. They've stopped being enamored with Jesus, and they have instead become enamored by mere men. And the result is quarreling and division. And if we as a body of believers here in New Woodstock, if we ever stop fixing our eyes on Jesus, if we start putting our faith in whoever's behind the pulpit, whether it's me or someone else, or, or it's just someone else in the congregation, we too will begin quarreling with one another. We'll begin quarreling because that person that you're putting your faith in they will disappoint you. And you will abandon them and put your hope into someone else. And you will pit that person against that other person who disappointed you. No man can be enough for you. No man can be enough for me. Only Jesus can be enough for us because only he was crucified for us. And so he's the one that we need to trust in. He's the one that we need to boast in. So if we are to maintain our humble unity. We must ever be looking to Jesus Christ. We must ever be trusting in him and praying that whatever fool is behind the pulpit would be strengthened by him, that would point you to him. And if ever he does not point you to him, you must get him out. Otherwise, your unity will be threatened. So let's keep our eyes on Jesus.